Um, and then there's Saturn. If Saturn's up, and, you know, I would recommend to any funders going to be out there at night, go spend a second and go look at what's, what planets are going to be up in the sky so you just know that beforehand. Um, I think everybody should be able to, to be able to see Mars, for instance, and be able to point to it because it's, it's up right now. It's up, up in the uh, uh, early morning, and um, it's a definite reddish color. You can see it and point it out, and, you know, you can amaze all your friends. <laughs> That's a planet. I know what it is. These are stories of outdoor adventure and expert advice from folks with calloused hands. I'm James Nash, and this is the Six Ranch Podcast. So how would you... How, how would you consider yourself in this context? Are you an amateur astronomist? Yes, very much an amateur. I've been... So, here's the story. About six years ago now, my wife decided she needed to get me a Christmas present. And um, she talked to my one of my fishing buddies, who also has a bent in the scientific side of that. And he said, why don't you just... How about a, how about a telescope? You know, that's something he doesn't have. He's yet another toy. So she got me this fun little five-inch telescope. And within about three weeks, I was overwhelming the thing <laughs> with automation and things I wanted to do and, and cameras on it that it was unable to carry and things like that. And so within about two years, I bought an eight-inch. And and that's the objective lens? That's the objective uh, on it. So it's so you can imagine that it, this the, the eight-inch was maybe about two feet long-ish and probably a total of 10 inch in diameter but it had an eight inch mirror and it's a reflective it's called an astrograph because it's set up specifically for astro imaging so and in fact i have to admit i've never actually physically looked through the telescope the only thing i've ever looked through is the is that the pictures the cameras take and that's that's so you put this stack of of filters and a camera on the back of this thing and that that all hooks to a computer and then it just takes pictures, and then you look at it at the comfort in, of your computer at the at the pictures. So it's it's more like a camera than it is like an optic. It's like a camera with a great big huge um, telescopic lens on the front of it. Gotcha. When, when I say huge, I mean huge. So I use that for oh another couple of years or so, and continue to get into it, and I'm I'm a lot into the robotic aspects of it, of how the mount works and how it tracks and and writing uh, software. I got started writing software to, to, to run the thing. And then um, after that, I got the equivalent of two-foot disease in boats. You get two-inch disease in, in telescopes. And in this case, I went up to a 14-inch and got a 14-inch. So that's, you know, on the order of 16 inches of telescope on truss rods and all this other stuff. Same basic format and with the camera stuffed on the end. This one also has a rotator, so I can turn the camera for the particular angle that I want on the shot. But essentially, it's the same thing. Hooks up to a computer, has a big mount under it, which allows it to track and go to stars and so forth. So that's developed over the last six years, and now I'm so far into it, I don't know how to get out. Well, so far into it that one of the reasons that you moved to the big island of Hawaii and are living on a volcano is for your access to clarity in the night sky. Right. Right, so we live on the 
dry side of why of the big island um most people don't know there's a dry side of the big island but um that's where we live and we're at about 2,000 feet and have pretty clear skies most of the time we're on the leeward side of the island so the clouds kind of end over the side and theoretically we've got really good good viewing a lot of the time the only problem with that area i discovered and i did not do my research beforehand was that when the trade winds are blowing hard then what will happen is that they hit the wet side of the island so hard they blow over to the other side and we get something which I call the Waimea uh, mist, which is it's perfectly clear skies, but you have this mist all around you coming mm. down, just like drizzle. So that was an unexpected problem, shall we say. How many clear nights a year are you getting there? Oh, probably about 100 crystal clear nights. Yeah. About that. Which is great if you compare that to... You know, the rest of the world, that's an ideal location. Right, because there are other homes in Olympia, and we have 52 days a year where it simply doesn't rain. That's not clear days. That's days it doesn't rain. Yeah. So that works out. How much rainfall occurs in Olympia? I I couldn't tell you what the statistic is. Yeah, it's in feet. Yeah, yeah, generally speaking. Not inches. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Okay, so the one in Hawaii, that's the 14-inch lens? Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And what is the zoom power on that? Um, Telescopes don't zoom. So it's kind of hard to Hmm. describe this. like having a fixed camera. Uh, The way you measure what a telescope will do is in terms of the focal view that you have on it. So the focal view that I get out of my telescope is uh, about, well, it's about half a degree, which would be about half, three quarters the size of the moon. Okay. So um, that's one way to think about it. Now, most people think the moon's looking at it's much larger than it really is. But if you take a dime and hold it up in the air, it'll pretty much co- cover the moon. So you can see how tiny that thing really is. Uh, but that's how tiny the view is. It would take, to do the whole sky with my, my telescope, if I were to take a picture, it would take well over a million shots just to do the whole sky. So that gives you another idea how small a view that you have. When you're talking about writing code or or developing software, you're trying to train this telescope to identify objects in the sky. Well, the good news is there's existing software that does all that for you. So you can, the software you bring up on your screen, you say, I want to look at uh, the belt of Orion or whatever, and it will automatically figure out the coordinates of that given the time of day and where your location is, and we'll point that. The stuff I do is so I can go back to bed. So what I want to do is uh, I write software such that it will automatically do the focusing that I need. It will adjust that over time. As the temperature changes, your focal length will change slightly, but mm-hmm. it matters. It's, it's enough. Um, it will automatically go, repeatedly go to the right spot that you want, or if you're doing multiple shots, it'll do multiple of those, and then it will take a sequence of pictures. Um, the way most astrophotography is done is through filters. You don't have a color camera, usually. Uh, you'll have red, green, blue, and clear, which is what you essentially need and uh, to, to reconstitute color out of, a, out of an image. So it will also, the software I build also will pick the lenses that you're going to use, the order you use them, so forth, and then I can push a button in, in, in my uh, dome over in Hawaii, it'll open the dome, turn on the power, put the telescope in the right position, focus things up, and in the meantime, I'm sleeping happily in bed, and it does all this. And at the end of the night, it will 
sense, for instance, if there's a problem with cloudiness or raininess, it'll sense that, close the dome, shut everything down. Or if morning's coming and I'm done, uh, it will turn everything off and put it away and uh, tuck it in. And, and when I get up in the morning, I can start just looking at the images that I've taken all night long rather than babysitting it for eight hours and end up exhausted. So. Right. A couple of years ago, um, we talked about this. You were looking for nebulas. Mm-hmm. What is a nebula? Um Let's see. There's two types of nebulas in general. Uh, a nebula is essentially a cloud of gas and dust, which is, is what our own solar, solar system has condensed from you know, four, four and a half billion years ago. It was just a cloud of dust. Uh, and so when you look up in the... When you look up, look up in the sky, there are two types of nebula you'll see. You'll see something called a bright nebula, or you'll see something called a dark nebula. A bright nebula is a cloud of gas and dust, which is lit up by the stars inside of it. And it can be either a reflection nebula, which means the, that gas and dust is reflecting the light off the stars. Or it can be an emission nebula, which means the, it's like a neon sign, meaning the, gla- the stars are so hot inside that that gas that it lights it up it, it basically excites it and gets it to glow just like a neon neon sign if you look at the sword of orion which most of us boy scouts at one time or another were pointed at that is an emission nebula and you see this real dim glow with the naked eye and that's all it's actually a star birth area that's going on one of the largest that we know about in our own galaxy and they're uh, um, it's glowing whereas if you look at uh, the area where Sagittarius is, uh, the Milky Way itself. So it, this is band of stars. And mm-hmm. if you look on a very clear night, you'll see these big, dark gaps. Okay. Those gaps are actually dust clouds as well between us and those stars. And those are called dark nebula. So they're the same gas clouds. There's just no stars in them to light them up. And it just blocks the light of the ones behind. And all of them have interesting shapes and characteristics and sizes and so forth. So this is what happens before a solar system is born. Yep, exactly. It's it's a solar system. Our sun will, well, a, a star like our sun will condense out of this. So gravity will gradually vary over over very long periods of time. I mean, periods of time we can't even fathom. Will will gradually pull those that all that dust together, and it will collapse into a star and into a bunch of little parasites. Uh, orbiting around it, which are the which are the planets, um, and that's that's how these these st- uh, stars and planetary systems form. It's out of those. Mm. And what'll happen is if you get any of the big ones, really big stars, uh, ten or greater times the size of the sun, they burn so hot that they'll actually blow that gas back out slowly, automatic. But but you see you can see it pushing back out away from the stars. The pressure of the light so intense that it moves it away. Amazing. Yeah. And you got some really good images of these. Yeah. Yeah. Great stuff. There's people who do much better work than I do. I mean, pro- professional quality work, but it's in the doing it, which right. which is be able to say, I mean, just like you're taking uh, photography of, of, of wildlife. Um, sure, you can go find some people who spent days out there, camped out, and finally get the exact angle on the elk with a rack up. But, but getting one yourself is something totally different. Sure. I took that picture. It's yeah. Good. Satisfying on yeah. another level. Absolutely. But nebula season is over, and now you're hunting for something else. Well, uh, yes, in a way. There's uh, when uh, I'll sort of tell a story behind this, but 
large stars, lar- 10 times larger than our own, and they go up to hundreds and thousands of times larger than our own sun in terms of the size of stars, um, burn a lot faster than our sun does. And they, they burn so much hotter than our sun and so much faster that they actually produce blue light instead of the yellow light that we see from the sun. So, um, and in fact, there's a range of stars depending on their size that go all the way from very, very reddish, which are very small stars, to very huge, big stars, that, uh, which burn just bright, bright blue. And it's so intense uh, if you were in the neighborhood that you'd probably get instant sunburn. Mm. But um, the, these stars burn so rapidly that they essentially burn out their cores. And without going into all the physics on it, what happens is the outs- outside of the star is no longer held up by the pressure of the heat and light coming out from the inside of the star. So it collapses down on the core. Everything collapses together, and then it doesn't like being there, and it just blows out from that point. It just The most massive explosions known in the universe are these when these stars collapse. And they collapse about... A star will burn as short as just a million years and then go into this collapse. Those are called supernovas. And there's a bunch of types of them and stuff, but that's basically what they are. And a galaxy will show, if you, if you look at a galaxy, which is a collection of stars, basically, of you know a collection meaning a billion to a trillion stars, a galaxy will have maybe one supernova a year. Uh, so one of their stars a year. So it will go. And that seems to... You can do the math and figure it out. So, which you've done, which I've done. <laughs> so, <laughs> because how, how long should it take you, given your equipment, to find one of these supernovas, and how long have you been looking? Well, I, w- without going through the math, I figured out that it, it that given the number of galaxies that I take a snapshot of in a night, which is about with the current stiffness I have, is about say 40, 40 uh, different galaxies I take a snapshot of. And I do that maybe somewhere between 70 and 100 nights a year. Uh, it's going to take me three years to spot one of these supernovas. When they go off, they, um, they produce enough light to outshine the galaxy they're in. So it's real obvious to see you know, this little blur of stars way out there, a very small thing. And all of a sudden, there's this point of light in it that shouldn't be there. And that's, that's the signature of a supernova. So I've been looking for one for three years. Um, Statistically speaking, I should be within a 95% po- probability of finding <laughs> one in the next six months. <laughs> awesome. Well, statistics help. Yeah. So you're, you've got it on the run. And when you're taking a, a picture, the night sky um, is static, but we're moving. So according to us, the sky is moving. So you need your telescope, your, your, your big camera to rotate and and move around so that it can maintain that same image to get a long enough exposure to, to, right. to take a good picture. That seems incredibly difficult. Well, it uh, once again that's all in the all in the electronics. I mean the 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 mount itself is set up with motors inside and gear trains and all this other stuff to be able to track exactly to do that for you. You don't have to do any of that by hand, and they're amazingly accurate. I mean, incredibly accurate that uh, the particular mount that I use, if I could drop a name, is a software BISC makes a mount called a Paramount. And I have actually two of them, one being their mid-sized one, which is an MX, and the other one being their small one, their p- more portable one called a Mighty. Um, and those are able to track 
without any other guidance on it at an arc second. Um, it, it's hard to describe what an arc second is, but it's about maybe the width of a star that you would see with the naked eye. It's just the width of that. It will it will hold on to that point and to give you a cl the clarity of picture that you need. I wish there were another analogy I could use, but it's, yeah, I struggle so for it, that. It's like a degree, but much, much, much smaller. Our, yeah, uh, it's it's one thirty-six hundredth of a degree. Yeah, narrow. It's an arc second. Amazing. Yeah. Okay, so we've got we've got hunters who are about to spend you know the next several months out there. A lot of them sleeping on the ground, and a lot of them have really nice optics. And a thing that you consistently hear from hunters, especially those who are coming to the wilderness from town is that they're mesmerized by the night sky because it's not something that they usually get to see because of light pollution. Right. But they've got optics. Um, so say I've got a spotting scope that has an 80 millimeter objective lens, you know, something three and a half, four inches. I don't know. Right. And in uh, a 55 power zoom, what, what are some things that I could be looking for in in the hunter's night sky and and trying to observe and like what's up there that I can look at? Well, with optics like that, you can do you you can start and go quite across a range of things. One of the things you can do, though, you don't your your tracking is going to be less good. But go look at the craters of the moon. I mean, it's when you have optics of that quality, you just actually. Take some time to look, and especially the best time is when it's at a half moon or or less, because you get the uh, the shadows going mm -hmm. across. There's an amazing terrain up there, and you just never really think about. It looks all smooth, right? In fact, for for centuries, people thought the moon was relatively smooth, but you take a look up there, it's not. Right. And there are some gigantic craters and and uh, lines of debris which were thrown out when those when those when the moon got smacked by the by the rocks that hit it, which are just, they're, they're, they're remarkable. They're mesmerizing. You look at that and just keep scanning over it. The second thing is to look at planets. Um, most people don't think about it, but you can see the moons of Jupiter. It was one of the first things that Galileo way back when saw and convinced him that the Earth actually went around the sun rather than vice versa, hmm. was seeing those satellites go around the and you can see there's little specks of light right around Jupiter. And if really good optics on a very clear night, you might actually be able to see some of the uh, um, lines, the, the, not the rings, but the, the lines on Jupiter itself, the, the uh, cloud, right. cloud patterns. Um, and then there's Saturn. If Saturn's up, and, you know, I would recommend to any funders going to be out there at night, go spend a second and go look at what's, what planets are going to be up in the sky so you just know that beforehand. Um, I think everybody should be able to, to be able to see Mars, for instance, and be able to point to it because it's, it's up right now. It's up, up in the uh, uh, early morning, and um, it's a, a definite reddish color. You can see it and point it out, and you, know, you can amaze all your friends. <laughs> That's a planet. I know what it is. And then with optics, you can see the rings of Saturn, and that was the thing that sticks most people. Well, they will tell you the first thing that they ever remember about looking the sky was seeing the rings of Saturn and it, it is remarkable it really is because um, it's so bright so clear and you can see them and go well it's just like Hubble <laughs> and there's a bunch of apps that you can get that you know you can hold your phone up and it'll show yep. you more or less what you're looking at so you know you could take your phone and wave it around the the sky like you're you know 
batting away at a horse fly or something and then you know once you find these planets now you can get out your spotting scope and and actually try and zoom in and, and look at it right yeah my, my recommendation though is and people don't think about this is make sure you have an app that doesn't require web enabling yes <laughs> yeah it's good <laughs> needs to be able to work without the interwebs right it's very disappointing otherwise yeah but yeah they have those apps um and they're quite useful. They'll yeah. also tell you what's up and available to look at. And if you have one of those apps, just leading off that, uh, they will also tell you some of the other things that you can look at, which are just interesting. I, I mentioned Orion, for instance, in mm-hmm. the Orion's belt. You can see that with optics like you're talking about. You can see the, see the glow and the stars embedded in it, and there's a number of other ones. There are, uh, you can see with that type of optics, and I have just a 11 by 40 image stabilized um, optics and I use it I can pick out a, a particular type of let's just call it a sub galaxy that's not really the right term but it's basically we have globular clusters which orbit the Milky Way our galaxy and those are basically a ball of a hundred thousand to a million stars and you can see those with the type of optics that you're talking about and you can see the see the center and you can't make out the individual stars but you can see this glob of, of, of stuff and there's a whole bunch of them up there uh, some of them are, are major size things, but you won't see them with the, the naked eye. They just look kind of like a fuzzy blob. If you uh, and ha- having stabilized binoculars really helps. Oh, uh, it's there's no way to compare that. Right, I mean, just locking down is the way to go. Yeah, so a tripod if you, if you're going to be using a, a spotting scope, which is basically a telescope. And uh, and then stabilized binoculars if you're going to be handheld. Right, anything over uh, a focal. Um, aperture of about say maybe 50 millimeters you're going to need a, a tripod right. or stabilization yep but but even if you have just eight by 12s perfect sure. eight by 12 stabilizers are terrific for doing that sort of stuff okay let's talk about size like uh oh yeah <laughs> let's talk about the size of stuff and we we're, we talked a little bit about angles and the angular measurements. How big how big is the moon to start with? You know, it's interesting that the size of the moon and its distance makes it so that we can have an eclipse. Like, that's right. pretty cool. That it is apparently the same size as the sun, even though they're very much not the same size. But how big is the moon to start with? Oh, wow. Facts and figures. Um so I like to think of the moon as being, and once again, I'm maybe a little bit off, but it's, it's the scale thing is you think about the earth being the size of a soccer ball, the moon's the size of a tennis ball. Okay. Now the, the distance, the way, away that the tennis ball is from the soccer ball is the thing I'm trying to scratch my head about, but, but you think in terms of feet mm-hmm. in that particular case. Yeah. Right? So um, it's actually t- 240,000 miles away. Um, and, but that would be the relationship is maybe uh, four to five feet, I'm guessing, in that particular, maybe 10, uh, something like that. Now, there's, there's numbers that, uh, that we're going to throw around here a little bit. And these numbers have been getting thrown around in economics lately quite a bit as well. And I, I just want to help people understand these a little bit. So if you have a million seconds, that is about 11 days. 
If you have a billion seconds, that's just short of 32 years. If you have a trillion seconds, that's just short of 32,000 years. Right. So it, it can be difficult to sort of think about this stuff in, in our minds because we're not really meant to, to deal with numbers like this. It's, it doesn't occur in our day-to-day. But we can conceptualize what, you know, 11 days versus 32 years versus 32,000 years. Even 32,000 years is, is so abstract, you know. Yeah, it's, it's beyond us as, as well. Right. 32,000 years is just short of the amount of time that our particular species has been. You know, 40,000 years is sort, of the, is, is sort of the human time frame that we're on. Yeah. So. so then we take that, that number, a trillion again, and if you were to stack up a trillion business cards that would reach from the surface of the earth to the surface of the moon. So a business card is, is thin. Pretty right? thin, It's right. a piece of paper. So a trillion is quite a large number, and it's really hard for us to deal with that. But that is more or less what a trillion is, million is, billion is. That's how far away the moon is and about how big it is. So tennis ball versus a soccer ball makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I'll give you one more, too. And this is the one that works for me. Um, m- many of us have been to the Grand Canyon. You stand on the rim of the Grand Canyon, look down to the bottom of it, at its deepest point, and you stacked dimes from the bottom to the top, it'd be about a million dimes. Wow. That's all. I mean, if you think about it, that's all. So then you're talking about a trillion, which is a million million to get to the moon. You can start seeing the difference of those. But the stack of dimes things are the things that really set it in with me, a million dimes from the top to the bottom. And you can look at that and go imagine that. That's a huge number. Just it a is a huge number. And then you take, I mean, I can't talk about the depth of uh, the Grand Canyon without mentioning that Hell's Canyon is another 1,800 feet deeper. Yeah. So we. So we, how many dimes is we that? We need dude? some more dimes. <laughs> we need some more dimes. All right. So expanding out from there, um, you know, I, I eventually want to get a general concept of, of how big we think the universe is, how big these galaxies are, things like that. So just take it and roll. Where I have my place in Hawaii is right next to the town of Waimea, which is where about half of the telescopes that are on top of the Mauna Kea in Hawaii are. That's where they do the actual work is down in the town. And once a year, they have a kind of a planetary festival there or something. And they do a planetary walk. And what they do is they put the sun in the front yard of the uh, building, and then they start placing planets out from that to give people an idea of the distance so you put the sun and then you put mercury's about a foot away or two feet or something like that and then venus is about you know five or six feet away from that so you can see the whole inner solar system in the size of a yard you start putting the planets up going up a road and they've got this straight road that just goes out when you're about i think it is somewhere around a mile and a half out of town is where Pluto is. Wow. Um, Pluto is in our near vicinity, relatively speaking. You would probably, once again, I wish I had these. I've read these things before, but I don't keep them at hand. Um, but my guess is you're looking at across the United States to the nearest star. So that's mm-hmm. just the nearest star using that scale sure. of, 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 of things. So Pluto's mile and a half, the nearest star is the width. 3,000 miles. Right. Yeah. Um, and so those are the kind of type of scales. The, so the nearest star is 
well, on the order of 10-ish, no, four-ish light years away, four to 10, somewhere in there. Um, uh, you can look up the numbers. But, they, but it's, a, it's a low number. It's a point I'm trying to make. Um, Orion is on the order of which we were talking about the star group in the belt. I think that's on the order of like 18 to 20,000 light years away. So it's a significantly larger number of dimes away from um, the nearest star. And then to get to the center of the galaxy is uh, on the order of, it's probably on the order of 30,000 light years, 30 to, 30 to 100,000 light years would be my guess. I probably have those numbers on. You probably should look those up. From from us to the center to of the, center. the Milky Way galaxy. Right, and we're about two-thirds of the way out of, of, of the center of our galaxy as well. I wish I had those numbers at hand, but every time I remember a number like that, it pushes something useful out of my brain. So. <laughs> so the Milky Way galaxy, is it big compared to other galaxies? Is it par for the course? It's a larger size galaxy. It's not as large as they get. They get massive the the milky way has on the order of on the order of a trillion stars maybe half a billion excuse me 500 billion maybe a trillion somewhere in that level our nearest good sized neighbor has a few more than that uh, that's the andromeda which once again you can see with your binoculars in fact you can generally see it with a naked eye and really clear uh, you can see this galaxy up there which is wider than the moon hmm. in terms of its uh, angular Right. Uh, size on it. Um, once again, most people don't know that's up there. Um, so, and that's our that's our next door neighbor as far as galaxies are concerned. In terms of big numbers, yeah. And you know, in a few years, in terms of millions, um, we'll collide with that galaxy. We're headed towards each other, hmm. and nobody has the brakes on. So, that's going to be a mess. So, what happens when one galaxy and another go past each other? You, you get these beautiful effects of the stars and massive star i mean you imagine these dust clouds all colliding together and stuff in a very slow motion of course but you get these beautiful butterfly looking effects of 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 mass flying all over the place basically in big sweeps and whorls and so forth and you can take pictures of these things colliding and it's it's gorgeous it really is to see what's happening um, and you got to remember these stars as i said they're a long ways apart they never hit each other they're just flying by massive distances between them um so really it's more of a, a a passing effect than anything else but it certainly tears their structure all apart and makes new different structures going on as we get closer to each other will will gravity from these two galaxies start to accelerate and and move the galaxies towards each other at a faster rate yeah yeah absolutely it, it just same thing as if you were to drop uh, a, a rock from a cliff it speeds up as as time goes on. So, hmm. well, um, I hope to not be around when that happens. Good chance you won't, but you know, you never know. <laughs> never know. Anything's possible right. these days. <laughs> All right. So there's about a trillion stars in our galaxy. Andromeda is a big galaxy as well, um, and it's a long ways away. How many galaxies do we know about right now? Wow, good question. Um, there are literally millions of galaxies in the visible universe that we can see. Um, so you can figure that it, 
probably billions that we can actually see. And so there's, I always think of it as, you know, that there's about the same number of galaxies in the visible universe that we can see as we have stars in our galaxy. So it's anywhere from, you know, 100 billion to a trillion that you can see. Once again, my numbers are probably low. Um, but uh, obviously there's great distances between galaxies as well. Um, vast majority of the universe is space. It's just empty vacuum. There's nothing there, um, surprisingly so. And those distances are vast. Uh, Andromeda is on the order of millions of light years away. And then we have clusters of galaxies, which are, um, you can once again see those because they map them where they are and so forth. And you have clusters of thousands of galaxies together. And those clusters are in, in, in uh, super clusters of those as well and then those are in long streams and and fibers of 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 galaxies of super clusters going out and you have this if you map the whole thing and keep back backing it out you have this looks like a sponge basically a light sponge of big gaps and holes with with galaxy clusters all surrounding those and so forth it's it's, it's once again it's beyond beyond baffling to actually look at that sort of stuff yeah, so, I, I don't recommend it to anybody who wants to stay sane. <laughs> How does um, an electromagnetic pulse or radio travel through space? There must be something there to allow that, that wave to ride on. Well, a wave, the, the, we dive deeply into quantum mechanics, but a, a, a light wave consists, can be treated as both a particle and a wave. As so, far as like the photon particle, yeah, the phone. So, so a light wave essentially is a vibrating fo- photon. It's the easiest way. It's not the correct way to think about it, but it's the <laughs> easiest way to think about it. So, it doesn't actually travel through anything like we think of waves on water. It's actually the vibration of the fo- photon itself is one way to think about it. So that's what's carrying it is a photon. So, you have massive numbers of photons going through your body all the time. Um, your cell phone goes through mine, as far as I can tell. So. Uh, and so there's ones we can see. There's ones that are in spectrums we don't see. We only see a very, very tiny bit of the spectrum. So And that spectrum moves into the, the light spectrum as well. So right. all the different colors. Um, so as far as, you know, we know we're starting at infrared, red, orange, yellow, green, indigo, blue, violet, ultraviolet. Right. And then you start getting into radio frequencies, right? Yep. Yep. Okay. It's actually the other direction. But oh, we, we okay. have a tendency call, to call radio frequencies... Everything that we can't see. Oh, all right. But infrared is the lowest frequency that we can see. Well, not infrared, even but near infrared, mm-hmm. we can we can feel that as heat mm-hmm. is how we feel it. Um, but and what are classically radio waves are all below that. So, and then up above you have microwaves and, and uh, excuse me, going to microwaves. And once you get up above ultraviolet, you just get smaller and smaller into gamma rays and so forth. But they're all, it's just this continuum, just depending on the energy of the photon. Hmm. So when you have different colors coming off of, off of a planet or a star, nebula, whatever, mm-hmm. those are different frequencies of light. Yep. Are they moving at different speeds? Nope. Everything moves, all light moves at exactly the same speed through space, through a vacuum. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. Well, it's, yeah, it's. Once again, one of these things nobody can explain. Right. You would you would think that something with a different frequency that had a different magnitude would be, you know, moving at a different yeah, speed. Yeah, high, higher energy to go yeah. speed. But it's one of the one of the facts. Nothing that nothing can move faster than the speed of light. 
and it's what's been proven. And there's you know very good solid evidence and models and everything else to describe that. Why it's 186,000 um, miles per second, that's the hard part to try to explain. Why is it that specific number? Um, but it's that number. And it's one of the reasons that right now actually trying to go four light years to a, another star and see what's there is for us a technical impossibility. It would take literally generations to do that. The other thing is it takes, just as in anything, it takes energy to accelerate. And the closer you get to the speed of light, the more energy it takes to accelerate. So uh, as you approach the speed of light, it becomes taking an infinite amount of energy just to get to that particular point because it continues to go up. And that's one of the reasons that uh, star travel today is not really a possibility. What what will it take to get there? A different energy source? I don't know. I, I really don't know. It's, you know, I read too much science fiction to answer that. <laughs> it's like, um, there's different different views on it. Um, but I don't know. I you know I, I even hesitate to speculate it. Sure. Yeah. Mars, Elon Musk is trying to trying to move some folks to Mars, open up some tourist shops, go over <laughs> there and buy a shot glass and, um, I don't know, like a figurine or something. What uh what what's your take on this? Well, mixed feelings about it. exploration is always a fun thing to do, but we have done an enormous amount of just pure exploration with robotics. Um, and I, I think we will probably continue to do an immense amount of exploration with robotics. Uh, biologically, we're pretty fragile as humans, as anything biological. We haven't yet actually figured out how we can take a human from the Earth to Mars without killing them. And because space outside our little bubble in the Earth is full of, of photons mm-hmm. and particles that are moving very, very fast. And they have a tendency to blow up our genes and cause us to mutate and get cancer and all sorts of other things. And we really don't have a way to protect somebody for the year and a half it would take for them to get to Mars. Can that get figured out? Probably. Um, great investment of technology and money and resources to be able to do so. But I guess I'm less enthusiastic about trying to physically explore somebody somewhere than some, somebody out. But on the other hand, I think Lewis and Clark were pretty fun to listen to read about. So what, what do we hope to gain from, from Mars? I mean, what, what lesson can be learned there? Is there a resource there that we could potentially bring back that would benefit us here? Uh, I suppose so. I'm, but there's the same sort of resources available from much easier places to get in and out of. Um, you got to remember, planets are basically a gravity well. Just like the Earth, it takes a ton of energy to try to get out of our gravity well and into space to start out with. Mars is the same problem. You get down there, you got a gravity well, you got to get down into and somehow put the brakes on. And then you got a gravity well to get back out of. And it costs a lot of energy, which means a lot of um, technology and, and money to mm-hmm. be able to do those things. So I'm, I'm trying to imagine what might be as a resource on Mars that would be, benefit people on Earth. You can pull an asteroid and bring it in much cheaper. And you've got all the iron that, and probably trace elements that you'd ever want in one of those things, as near as they can tell right now. 
So uh, that doesn't seem to me to be a thing. Uh, physical expa- I mean, expansion for more population, I mean, that's been one of the things that I'm trying to figure out why we want to expand our population <laughs> when we could do other things, right? Uh, a sustainable population would be quite an achievement for, for the world, I think. Um, so I, once again, I'm kind of, I understand for exploring why we want to do that. It's kind of bragging rights and interest in being there, but I'm sorry, I'm not on board with the whole idea of spending vast amounts of money and resources just, just to put a man on. Yeah. yeah. Do you watch uh, the Avengers movies by any chance? Yes, of course. Of course, yeah. I'm Team Thanos all oh. the way. <laughs> <laughs> so you were disappointed uh, with, yeah. the, with, the, with the final outcome. Sure. You know, I think we, we took it a movie too long. <laughs> yeah. He was the ultimate conservationist. He's trying to help folks out. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Anyways. And didn't leave a mess. No. No, no suffering. Just, just done. snaps his fingers and... And, uh, you know, it gives us a little bit of a fresh start, those right. who remain. Not a super popular opinion. But I know there's some <laughs> other folks out there that are Team but, Thanos that are, you know, fist pumping right now. <laughs> well, this is this is an amazing thing, and it's it's fun to think about, right? Like, that's kind of the bottom line. Yeah. It, some of this stuff is so beautiful for us to look at. It's It's good to engage your mind and to realize how small we are and and to think about our problems you know a lot of folks sort of are looking at mars like oh if we you know completely destroy this planet we'll just move to mars like find another one to destroy yeah best of luck like a lot of the work's already been done there they barely have an atmosphere um this the radiation is incredible the uh the the temperature swings are huge mostly being pretty darn cold it's it's not a good outlook so having an intergalactic outlook on on problems is a little bit better than even thinking locally or thinking globally because we do need to do our best with what we have and make it work as long as possible but uh yeah the continually growing population is is a major issue and it's something that people really don't want to talk about right i mean it's it's I think people do much better when they realize they're trapped on an island and no hope's coming <laughs> than they do when they think think that the uh, love boat's going to show up. I right. just it they just seem to work better in their in their environment. I don't know what that's about, but it's an observation. So what's the what's the future look like for you in in how you're going to be viewing the sky? Um, you know, are you going to get a bigger telescope do you feel like after you find a supernova that you'll be looking for something new uh in terms of there's there's a couple of projects that i have in mind at this point in time one is i want to get better at what i call the portable uh portable astrophotography and uh, for instance i've taken that eight inch that i had and i now have a totally portable setup which i carry around in the truck and i want to be able to find spots at high altitude where i can get the clearest possible shots that i can and there's a whole i hate to call it but it's a whole technology around doing that the batteries that you require how you how you keep charged how you can run all night how you can deal with do how can you have enough weight that you can actually carry around and still get all that where are the spots that you can go to to do those things all that all that uh, is very interesting technology to me, and I want to do that. 
So that's part of the puzzle. The other puzzle, there's something called a mosaic in terms of a, a, a picture that you can take of, of the sky. A mosaic is, as it sounds, is a series of photographs which are done in a grid. And so you can take what, you know, I, I said my particular focal view is just half the size of the moon essentially well i'd like to do pictures of the sky which are say five or six times the size of the moon so you get a whole bunch of different there's structure up there which is of that size and i'd like to be able to get it in one picture but you end up having to do this mosaic to make it happen and so there's there's a lot of I don't know, ins and outs of trying to make that happen over successive nights and getting, getting that all integrated together. And so that's really one of my goals as well, to go work on that. Is there any place that people can see the pictures that you've taken? Uh, not that I'm aware of. Yeah. I, mean, I do this purely for myself. I think I, I think I gave one away in an auction. So if you can figure out who that went to... You can. I'm more than happy to find it, but no, I I don't. But you can go online and you can see tr truly terrific work by amateurs on a number of sites. Just look up, just do astrophotography and go look. Uh, I'd and as a note, I'd also say go on YouTube and just look up size of the universe, and you'll find some really remarkable work that people have done where they start with the size of the moon and then they work up to the size of the of the universe itself, and it's. It's pretty fun to watch that go on. Of course, you'll walk away feeling pretty small, but... Um, not a bad thing. Not necessarily a bad thing, no. Yeah, not necessarily a bad thing. How about some other resources? Like if people want to read about this or like say somebody just wants to get started with, with maybe taking some pictures of the night sky on their own. Uh, so the best way to start is to just do it. And um, I recommend to people when they're starting to think and say, I want to get an astro astrophotography, give me the big, biggest telescope you can. So they say, no, no, no. Get a pair of image-stabilized binoculars. Get yourself a sky map and a book on what's up there. And go sit in your backyard in a lawn chair and just go look for a while and see if that works for you. And start discovering the objects and also what it means to look at them. Once you get past that and you're only... A few dollars invested in this you can decide whether you want to take the next step and either get a scope to observe with or get a scope that you want to start taking pictures with um, I actually started taking pictures with just a, a DLSR or DLR DS whatever it DSLR. is right? DSLR um, and um, just with a straight uh, regular lens on the thing and and in a in a regular mount and then I moved to using it through a telescope. And then I eventually got specialized cameras. But that, once again, allows you to get into discover if you really do want to do this. And it doesn't, isn't going to be too much uh, to do it in stages. But you're right back to the thing that you started the conversation out with is we own those optics. So you can sit down and just start and say, yeah, this is pretty interesting. I think I can do more of this. Or I'd like to take a picture and impress my friends. Yeah. Don't go look for supernova, though. It's <laughs> <laughs> that's the unicorn. Well, that's the other side of the coin on that one too. It's just there are professional people out there who have these massive arrays of looking at thousands of galaxies every day, and they pop out these discoveries. So you're not going to beat them. <laughs> you're not going to be the first one to discover one. But I just like to be able to do the check mark. That's all. Well, I look forward to seeing the image when you finally get it. Yeah. Okay. Well. I'll definitely shoot it off to you then okay thank you sir
Appreciate your time. Appreciate this information. Yeah, it's fun. Thank you. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the show. This episode was edited by Emily Brannigan, with original music written and performed by Justin Hay. Artwork for the Six Ranch podcast was created by John Chatterlin and digitized by Celia Christofferson. If you enjoyed the show, I encourage you to share it with a friend and subscribe. You can find photos and more content on Instagram at Six Ranch Podcast. I'll catch you next week. <laughs>